we've been doing as we've explored the truth claims of the Bible this semester in particular is we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about relationships. So we've talked about selfishness and shame, and we've talked about friendship, and we spent a few weeks on dating, which I know some of y'all are glad that those weeks are behind us. Um, But tonight we come to a pretty important topic as well, and this is the topic of marriage. And so really the question is, at least that I want to try to answer before we read this passage, is why would we spend a whole night on marriage when the bulk, if not all of y'all in this room, are not married? Well, here's why, it's, here's why I think this is relevant. Let me try to get at it this way. Back in September, I read um, uh, one of the opinion sections of the Daily Beacon and the, uh, that, that I, I kept until this moment. And the, the name of the article was, Why I'm Waiting for Marriage. And you think that she's talking about uh, you know, sexual abstinence, and I'm going to refrain from sexual activity, I'm going to wait till I get married. But she's not talking about waiting um, you know, for marriage uh, before she has sex. She's talking about waiting for marriage. I want to wait a good long while, the article says, until I actually get married. And then she explains why that is that she's very interested in waiting as long as she possibly can to get married. So let me read you um, a quote. She says this. The idea of settling down with another person for the rest of my life kind of horrifies me. What if they end up becoming a giant skid mark of a person after we say I do? Or what if they have a weird midlife crisis and want to move off the grid or go vegan? I'm just not prepared for a persistent brown stain on my life or that level of eco-consciousness. Now, my guess is some of y'all can identify with that, even if you wouldn't use the skid mark brown stained language that she uses. But it's the idea of getting married is kind of scary. What, what if you marry the wrong person? What if you get married to someone and you're that couple that goes out to dinner and it's this lifeless, you don't have anything to talk about dynamic. And so a lot of you, when you think about marriage, you dread it. You dread marriage, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that you grew up watching your parents have a really awful, painful, terrible marriage as well. So you look at this thing called marriage and you think, why would I ever want that? That seems awful. So some of you dread it, but the rest of y'all dream about it. Meaning some of y'all have been subscribing to bridal magazines since y'all were like 10. You've, you know, you've got the, the, the wedding ceremony already planned in your mind. If you're deep down honest, you're really here at UT to get that MRS degree, or you're here to get that ring by spring, or to give that ring by spring, you know, whatever. Like, as you really do think, marriage is this thing that when I get it, it will finally fulfill me, it will complete me, it will make sense of my life. And so really, the reason why we're talking about this tonight is because regardless of if you dread marriage or you dream about marriage, both sides are approaching the issue of marriage wrongly. Because both sides, whether or not you dream about it or dread it, are looking to marriage to be a thing that is going to provide you with happiness. That's the reason why you want to get married or the reason why you're trying to avoid it. And I'm trying to try to show you from this passage tonight that actually marriage is intended for something a whole lot better than just your happiness. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 22 and read through 33. It says this, Wives... Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I feel like that's a good, good place to stop. Let's sh- shut it down there. No. Uh, <laughs> submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
It's a joke. You know I'm joking. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we jump in and consider it. Okay, let's pray. Father, we are grateful that um, you have promised to meet us in what condition we find ourselves. And so I pray that you would be so kind as to do that. As we've just read your word and now ask your spirit to come and to attend your word, I pray that you would... Meet us and press the truths of this um, passage into our lives and into the hard places of our lives, into the dark places of our lives, into the bright places of our lives. Would you open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we would be able to see and hear truth and goodness and beauty. And we would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, True story. I'll begin with a true story. Um, This past March in London... Uh, a beautiful wedding took place out in this uh, kind of farm-like property. And uh, the back of the, uh, I guess, the kind of the congregation, there was about 50 people of close friends and family from a small wedding out in this nice farm. There's a, you know, a woman in the back dressed in her wedding dress, and um, the music starts, and she starts, you know, kind of walking her way slowly down the aisle towards the front, and everybody has stood, and they're facing her, and as she makes her way towards the front, there's nobody up there but a priest. There's no groom. Uh, There's no one else up there. And nobody was thrown off by this. She wasn't surprised by this. The congregation wasn't surprised by this. Because this was a wedding ceremony in which this 31-year-old woman went through to marry herself. And so uh, she got up to the front and she um, made vows to herself. This is a true story. You can look this up. I'm not making this up. She exchanged rings with herself and the wedding climaxed with her kissing a mirror. This is actually true. Um, Now, I know that raises a lot of questions uh, about her and about what in the world that was, uh, but I think if anything it raises the question that's relevant for us tonight is, like, can you do that? Is that, is that a, like, what, essentially, like, what is this thing called, what is marriage? And in fact, that is a massively loaded, controversial subject right now in our culture. Everybody's trying to figure out, what is marriage? Who can get married? But of course, even the discussions that we're having in this country at least presuppose you're talking about two people, not just one. And so I think for our purposes tonight, it raises this uh, 
these great questions of really what is this, what is marriage? When we, when we talk about it, what is it? And I think that this passage that we just read is one of the most classic biblical texts on the Bible's addressing that issue. What marriage is. And this, man, this is, there's, this is such a rich, loaded, jam-packed little section that we just read that we're really only going to be able to skim along the surface like a sea-dew as we go. But I think it does, even if we're going to skim along sea-dew-like, it does help us answer some fundamental questions, such as what marriage is, what marriage does, and what marriage shows us. And so those are kind of the big three questions that I want to explore from this passage with you tonight. What marriage is... What marriage does, what marriage shows, kill a shot. So here we go. First, what is marriage? How does this show you what marriage is? Well, let's look at it. Um, Verse 31, let's jump in there. Towards the end, verse 31 reads this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul, who's writing Ephesians 5, is is quoting, he's echoing this passage from Genesis chapter 2. Which is when God laid laid basically down the framework of what marriage is. And what the framework is, is that a man or a woman would leave their previous family structure and be united to each other. Some of your translations say they cleave to each other. And that is the language, that's covenantal language. The Bible uses this this language of covenant, that you leave something else behind. You leave your previous way of life, and you you bind yourself covenantally to another human being, which raises the million-dollar question. Okay, then what what does the Bible mean when it uses that word or that idea of covenant? Well, let's think about it. Some people have thought, try to get at it, that marriage, a covenant, is kind of like a contract. Think about a contract. I have a contract with AT&T my phone provider, and the way that we have worked out this contract, we have an agreement that if I pay them a certain amount of money per month, they provide me with a certain type of service, which is sometimes good and sometimes not so good. But they can get out of the contract if I break our agreement. Let's say I don't pay a couple of months, they can find me or they can cut off my service or they can just kind of drop me altogether. They can get out of the agreement. And I can get out of the agreement. If I find a better company that offers a better deal, I can upgrade. And uh, that may cost me, there may be a fine involved, there may be a headache involved, but they can get out, I can get out. But that's um, not exactly what a covenant is. Because if if you think about marriage in terms of a contract, what you basically say is, okay, we're going to agree to love each other. But if one of us fails in that agreement, then we can get out of it. If we get into this thing and I find out that I don't love you anymore or you're not making me happy anymore, then we can end this contract. Or if there's a better option that presents itself, I can upgrade. And it may, it may involve a lot of paperwork and money and it may be a headache, but I can get out of this thing. But you have to say, a covenant is different than a contract. A contract is agreement, it's loyalty to an agreement, a covenant is loyalty to a person. So, so here's a you know, basic definition of what a covenant is. It is a public, permanent promise to exclusively love the other person apart from any condition. That's what a covenant is. That's what marriage is. Fundamentally, what makes a marriage a marriage is that somebody stands up and makes a public, permanent promise to love that person exclusively, only that person, apart from any condition. Now, if that's what marriage is, before we move on, let's just think out some of the implications of what that could mean. 
Here's implication number one. If that's what a, if that's what a basically a marriage is, then here's implication number one. It's this, that your feelings are not the thing that binds your relationship together. Your feelings, that's not the thing that holds your relationship together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He says, love is not what sustains your marriage. Marriage is what sustains your love. Your love is not the thing that sustains your marriage. It's actually your marriage is the thing that's sustaining and cultivating and nurturing your love. Uh, you know, Catherine and I, my wife and I, um, we have some great, some good friends that we knew back in um, from a number of years ago, and they just recently went through a really, really painful divorce. Awful, long, drawn out, painful divorce. And I was really close to the guy and um, talked with him through this whole process, and one of the questions that I kept asking him is, why? Like, why are, we, why are you going through with this? And the question he kept providing, the answer he kept providing me was this, was, I've fallen out of love with her. We've fallen out of love with each other. When he said that, I wanted to stab him in the throat because what he was doing was reversing the whole point of what marriage is. That marriage is not driven by your feelings. Your feelings are not the thing that sustains your marriage. Your marriage is the thing that sustains your your feelings and, and your love. If you think about it like marriage is a greenhouse where love can be nurtured and cultivated and it goes through good seasons and it goes through bad seasons. But here's why this is so important for you to get right here and right now. Because you you have to believe me that you you are going to fall out of like with the person that you marry if you get married. You will fall there will there will come a day where you where you do not like them. You might love them, don't like them. And so the the, the you know if you've ever actually paid attention what couples are doing when they're at a wedding making vows, if you've ever paid attention, nobody ever stands up at a wedding unless they've written their own vows and it's, and it's um, gooby or weird in some sense. But traditional sort of Christian vows at a wedding, you stand up and do not make declarations of your present feelings of love. You don't say, oh, you're so amazing, you're so awesome, you complete me, this, you're just the jam, whatever. Nobody stands up and says that. What they say, they're not saying present feelings of, uh, you know, of, of love. What they're doing is they're making declarations. They're making promises of future actions of love. It's all future tense. I will love you. I will act loving towards you for richer or poorer, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I'm setting a date in the future, and I'm saying, I will be there, and I will love you then. Put it on the calendar, regardless of what is going on. When you decide to grow that nasty stash in a few years and think it's cool, I will be there then. I will love you then. When you get old and have to wear diapers, I'm there for you then. When you are irrationally mean to me and hurtful and really wound me, I am, I'm in then. I will love you then, regardless of condition, regardless of circumstance. That's what a covenant is. It's not your, it's not your feelings. It's you promising, I will love you regardless. And this is, really, this is actually fundamentally why marriage is different than dating. Dating is you saying, hey, I really like you right now. I might even love you right now. 
But that's all that I will commit to is right now. And that's fine. That's what dating is. Dating is not marriage. Marriage is different. Marriage says we're setting a calendar. We're clearing our calendar for the rest of our lives. Until one of us dies, I'm in to love you. So it's not your feelings that uphold and sustain your marriage. It's actually the promise. Here's a second implication. The second implication is this, is that marriage is a decision. I know that takes away a lot of the romance of it and kind of pops the Hollywood bubble, but, but marriage is essentially a decision that you choose to make a promise to someone. And this gets into this whole question of how a lot of y'all are trying to ask this question, trying to figure out this question, how do I know who I'm supposed to marry? How am I going to find the one? Am I ever going to interact with and find the one? There's a song, uh, I guess it was, it's been a few years now, Ben Folds, I'm a Ben Folds fan, and he came out with, uh, wrote a song a number of years ago called From Above. And it's the story about two people that are soulmates, but they've actually married other people. And so they have different relationships, even though they're soulmates, but, but the, their whole lives, they kind of barely miss each other. Like they pass each other on a party, they sit behind each other in a movie theater, but they've never, they never meet and then here's what, the, here's what some of the lyrics say. They say this. If I can find it. Here it is. It, it says, it's not like they were ever actually unhappy in the lives they lived. He married Martha. She married Tom. There was just this vague notion that something was wrong. A naked absence, a phantom limb, an itch that could never be scratched. And I think that's how a lot of us think about marriage. We think, okay, there's somebody out there that I'm mystically, spiritually connected to. They're the one. And I'm so afraid of committing to someone because what if I commit to someone and they're not the one? And then the rest of my life, there's sort of that phantom limb feeling. There's this itch that can never be scratched that I'll never really be satisfied. I'll never really be happy if I marry the wrong person. What if my soulmate's over there and I'm stuck with this loser? And the way, and one of the things that Christians have done is that we've come up with really bizarre methods to try to figure out who the one is. And so the way that, the method by which we've gone to figure out how you know it's the one is we say things like this, you'll just know. You'll just know. You'll have this mystical feeling of certainty, and when that feeling comes over you and you just know, then you know that's the one. And I think that's actually... I think that's really unhelpful, and I think it's a little bit misguided, because marriage is is not you going out and finding the one. Marriage is you promising to someone. And, you know, people have asked me this, how how did you know that Catherine was the one that you were supposed to marry? How did you know that she was the one? And my answer is, right after I said, I do, at our wedding, that's when I knew she was the one, because I said, I I will love this one. Okay, she's the one. I know that takes the romance out of it, but it's, it's the truth. Whenever you get to a point where you're willing to say, I do, to that person, they're the one. So, marriage is a decision. So, essentially, that's what, that's what marriage is, in a nutshell. Marriage is a covenant. It's a public, permanent promise that you are going to exclusively love this person, choose to love this person, decide to love this person, apart from any condition, even your feelings. So, secondly, uh, what is it that marriage does to you? If you get married, what does it do to you? Well, let's 
Let's actually go back to the text and look. If you look at verse um, 25, he, write, he writes this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. This is the idea. God has set up marriage in such a way that when you enter into it, God transforms you. You you get transformed in it. That's all that language of being cleansed and washed of your filth and your sin and your selfishness and that you're transformed into something beautiful and holy and great. The idea is that essentially marriage, therefore, does not exist for your happiness, but primarily for your holiness. God has designed marriage not to be the key to your satisfaction, but the key to your sanctification. But if you want to grow, if you want to grow in Christ quickly, get married tomorrow. Because it's like sanctification chamber on speed. So here's the deal, though. If, if, um, let's think through how this works in real life. If you, if, you, if you go back to a couple's first date with someone, think about the first date. You go on a first date with somebody, you... Um, you dress up, you look nice, you hide the, you know, the ugly things about yourself, you put on the deodorant and the mouthwash and whatever else hygienic people do, and um, they put on their best behavior, you know, they're polite, they're funny, uh, they're inquisitive, they're asking questions, they open the door, and basically a first date is you just lying to each other. You're, you're, you're saying to each other, I'm a lot cooler, funnier, and more polite than the person I really am in real life. And so we sort of impress each other that way. And as you kind of begin to date someone, slowly you start letting your guard down. Slowly you start being yourself. But you're never actually fully yourself until you get married because you can't sustain that sort of um, performance 24-7. At some point after you get married, all the walls come down and you really are actually yourself and that's like when the nuclear bombs start going off in a marriage because now you have somebody who is le- who is letting all of their sin out on the table and really maybe for the first time in their life they have to start dealing with it because you have someone else constantly holding a mirror up to you and saying this hurts me that is obnoxious that is annoying why do you do that i don't do it that way why do you do it that way This is really painful what you said to me. You are being really lazy right now. It's just constant mirror up to yourself. And so you're exposed in a way that you were never exposed before. You see who you really are, maybe for the first time. And what marriage does then is it teaches you to have to deal with yourself. And it teaches you to have to deal with another human being. With grace and with patience and with forgiveness. I mean, if you think about it, if the assumption of marriage is... When you get into it, it will change you. The assumption is you need to be changed. And the person you marry needs to be changed. You marry a sinner and they marry a sinner. And y'all are deeply, deeply flawed. And when you come together, well, think about it like this. I mean, we had, we had friends come over to our house this past weekend. And they, I, I married them about 10 months ago. So they're sitting around our dinner table, and we're just asking them how the first 10 months of marriage have been. And they were pretty candid about how 
excruciatingly hard it is. And there were tears that were shed, and we talked about counseling. And I don't know if y'all know this, but the first year of marriage is really hard on a lot of people. Because you come into marriage and you think, I need this person to complete me. I need this person to cater to my demands of happiness. And when that person thinks the same thing, you get into it and it explodes. You don't realize how unbelievably painful it is. But the deal is, once you get in this thing, the the nature of a marriage is there's no eject button. You're thrown into this, and you're covenantally bound. It's like a cage match. And that's why, really, for the first time, you can't get out from under this. You have to deal with you. And you have to learn how to deal with someone else who is really sinful. We'll use me as an example. Early on in our marriage, Catherine, my wife Catherine, would regularly get upset with me whenever we would leave church. We'd go to church and she, you know, once it was over, she kind of wanted to leave and like eat at lunch and like get on with her day. And I just kind of wanted to like see all my boys and my peeps and kind of visit with everybody and talk to everybody. And so, you know, she's over there in the corner just like waiting for me to finish up my conversations. And I'm like the last person to leave church. They're like turning off the lights and trying to get me to leave. And so we get in the car like an hour and a half later And I would constantly hear this thing from her, which is, why is it so easy for you to pick other people over me? Why is it so easy for you to say no to me, but you can't say no to other people? Man, what she was doing, she was beginning to put her finger on this thing that I always kind of knew about me, was, was how desperately I need and want people to like me. And for me to say no to someone jeopardizes that. It risks that. For me to turn people away to go home with my wife risks, I think, in my mind, whether or not they're going to like me. And so now, before we were married, I could have justified that. I could have said, hey, she's being too clingy. She's being too needy. I could have, you know, if it really bugged me, I could have hit the eject button and broken up with her because I don't want that. I don't need that. But now I'm married to her. And now I'm doing something, my sin is doing something to hurt her. And now I'm in the cage match and I have to deal with it. And dealing with it does not make me happy. My marriage often does not make me happy because I have to start dealing with me. And when you have to start dealing with my sin, that involves counseling, that involves pastors praying for me and calling up on me and checking in on me, that involves like ongoing, constant, vigilant repentance on my part. A point is marriage does not necessarily make you happy, but I do believe that my marriage is making me more holy. Because I'm seeing my sin in a certain way, and here's my wife in the middle of it says, I, you hurt me, and yet I love you, and I'm committed to you. I love you the way that you are, but I love you too much to let you stay the way you are, because you're jacked up. And when, when, when I begin to experience that sort of love really from her, in some ways, that's when it unlocked what marriage was all about. Here's someone that is committed to me through thick and thin, d- d- despite the way that I'm hurting them, and they want to see me become beautiful. They want to see me become great. And he, So here's how this affects y'all. When you're in this position, you know, I think here's the implication of this for y'all, is how you decide, how you choose the person that you are going to marry. Here's how I think it affects y'all, because I think you have to stop asking the question, will this person make me happy? Will this person make me great? You have to start asking the question, am I willing to make this person great? Am I willing to lay down my life 
to make them more beautiful, them more holy, them more great. I mean, if you think about it, we approach marriage like we, we're, we're, people are submitting resumes to us. And we're, we're looking over the resumes and thinking, will this person fit in with my hopes and dreams? Will this person make me comfortable? Will this person make me look good in front of my friends and my family and my future employers? Will this person complete me? Will they be a nice accessory to my life? And when you go into marriage asking those questions, you get into year one and the thing blows up. And when you're tempted at that point to say, this is a terrible marriage. I've made the wrong move. I've got to get out of it. That's the point of the friction where you start to realize, this is the point. I'm becoming face-to-face with my selfishness and how unbelievably selfish I really am. So do not ask the question, will this person make me great? Will this person complete me? Will this person benefit me? I think the way that you know that you want to marry someone is you say, if I'm willing to die for their sake, if I'm willing to lay down my career, my life, my hopes and dreams in order to make them great, then you have a recipe for what could be an amazing marriage. That's what marriage does. It changes you, it transforms you, it sanctifies you. You become more gentle, more loving, more kind, more gracious. Last, what does marriage show us? If that's what marriage is, that it's this public, permanent, prominence thing, this covenant thing, if that's what marriage does, that it transforms you, then really, okay, here's the million-dollar question. How, why in the world would you do this? How in the world can you do this? Because I realize this, if you're, if you're actually paying attention, this sounds crazy. I'm going to permanently glue myself to another human that I know is going to hurt me and wound me, and yet I'm going to promise to always serve them and love them in order to make them beautiful apart from any condition. That's a little insane. How in the world are you ever going to do this? The only way you'll do this is if you figure out what marriage shows you. So let's look at this last thing, what marriage shows us. Uh, Let's look at the, the last verse here, or the second to last verse, verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's been talking about the love between a husband and a wife. And he says, um, oh yeah, by the way, this is actually more about how Jesus relates to his people. This is, marriage shows you how God loves his people. Marriage is intended to be a gospel reenactment. A real life, visible, living, breathing, visible picture of how God loves the church. How he loves you if you are in him. And so think about it like that. If marriage is a covenant, then this means that God relates to you covenantally. What does that mean, practically speaking? Here's what it means, practically speaking. That God is loving, God has bound himself to love you and to commit to you when you're at RUF and when you're reading your Bible and when you're praying and when you're going on mission trips and when you're forgiving your roommate. But it also means that God has bound himself to love you and to commit to you when you're having sex with your boyfriend when you're up to your ears in porn, when someone's having to hold your hair back because you're throwing up in the toilet, he loves you then. He loves you apart from condition. That's what it means to be loved covenantally. That there's nothing that you could do that could separate you 
from the love that he has for you if you are in him. There's this great, shocking Old Testament story about this. I'm sure some of you have read it, but the book of Hosea in the Old Testament is essentially about a guy that married the town whore. That's the Bible's language for her, not mine. And they get married, and she cheats on him. And she cheats on him again, and again, and again. And she gets pregnant from other guys. And he commits to her, and he helps raise those kids, and he binds himself to her. And the point of the book is, this is how God has chosen to love you. That when you are spiritually unfaithful to him over and over and over, he is the one that is faithful to you. When you've broken your promise on him a million times, he is the one that has kept his promise to always relentlessly love you. Now, if you think about that, if that gets into your bloodstream and you think, how would I live differently if I honestly believed that? How would you treat people differently? I think you would have so much more grace and compassion for people when they hurt you because you know that God has given you grace and compassion when you've hurt him. You would be so much more forgiving to those people that have wounded you when you know God has been countlessly forgiving with you. You would be patient with people when they're messy because God has been patient with you when you're messy. You, you, would, you would have a sense of gentleness and endurance and perseverance with the mess and the hardship of people's lives because that's how God has related to you. He has chosen to love you covenantally. But if you also think about it, he doesn't just love you covenantally. He loves you in order to cleanse you, in order to clean you. He lays down his life for you in order that you may become beautiful, in order that you may become great. He did not marry you because you were lovely. He married you in order to make you lovely. He didn't love you because you were good. He he married you in order to start making you become good. But how does he do that? How does he change you? How does he transform you? Does he change you by way of shaming you? Of basically pulling back his love from you, basically giving you the silent treatment or saying something like, how could your devotion to me be so pathetic? When my devotion to you is relentless and big, does he shame you? Does he manipulate you into changing? I mean, he could easily look at me and say, Matt, I didn't realize after 15 years you're going to be still struggling with the same sin. He doesn't manipulate. He does not shame. The way that he gets you to change, as it were, is he just shows you deeper levels of his love deeper levels of his grace, of him sacrificing for you, of him laying down his life for you. And when you see that, you can't help but be moved. When you see someone sacrificing their life for you, you can't help but be drawn to them. And as you're drawn to them, you're developing deeper reservoirs of kindness and humility and courage and boldness. He's making you become more beautiful, more holy. Look, I'll I'll, I'll end with this. Because I'm a pastor, I get to do a lot of weddings. I get to do some of your weddings, hopefully. And uh, one of uh, my favorite weddings that I've ever been to was not when I was officiating the wedding, but when I was the best man at a wedding. It was one of my good friends. It was maybe eight years ago now. Uh, I was the best man at his wedding. And the good thing about being a best man is you get to basically experience 
the wedding from the vantage point of the groom, but you don't have any of the pressure. Nobody's looking at you. Nobody cares about you. And so it's, it's kind of the best seat in the house in some sense. But so this wedding, you know, the, 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 the wedding is getting underway. The, the, the doors are closed in the back. The, the bride hasn't made her way in yet. And all of a sudden, you know, the organ kind of cranks up. Bum, 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 bum. And so, like, you know, everybody stands. And so everybody stands and turns to the back. And the doors bust open. And there is this, you know, of course, elegantly adorned, beautiful bride in this white dress holding her daddy's arm. And everybody's turned and facing her. But because I'm standing right next to my man, I see what he does and what he does when he sees her for the first time he cups his face his face turns red tears start streaming down his face and his knees start buckling he's so overwhelmed with the sight and the beauty of his bride and according to the bible that's jesus's reaction when he thinks of you he's the groom looking at his church, looking at his bride that he has laid his life down for, cleansed her of her filth, adorned her in the beauty of his righteousness and his goodness, and he cups his face, tears stream down his cheeks, his knees buckle, overwhelmed at the joy and the thought of how beautiful and radiant you are in his sight. And if that's the vision that you have of Jesus, thinking of you now, that has to change you. That has to move you. And when it begins to move you and transform you from the inside out, that's actually where you get the power for a good marriage, to love someone in that sort of way. But it's not just where you get the power for a good marriage. This is where you get the power for a good life, a life really lived to the fullness, knowing that nobody on this earth can complete you or satisfy you. It's only him. And when you have his love, in some sense you have it all. And it's worth forsaking everything in order to get it. The rest is just gravy. So will you come to him? Will you see him doting over you with that sort of overwhelmed love and affection for you? Consider an invitation. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, you love your bride, the church, enough to lay down your life in order to make her beautiful, in order to make us beautiful. And so would you give us eyes of faith to see and to believe that you actually delight in us, that you, that you um, sing over us. Would you help us to see your joy over us, your love for us. We, we so often see you as angry or disappointed or apathetic. And so we repent of the lies that we believe. Help us to apprehend how gracious your commitment is to us, how overwhelming and mind-boggling is your commitment is to us. And would that transform us from the inside out to have good marriages, to have good lives. And we would pray all this in Jesus' name.